welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Kieran Yoga podcast is Day Christensen. Day started practice in 2004 after she graduated art school in Chicago. Working on reception at a yoga center, she strayed into the Mysore class and inadvertently was amazed by what she saw. Soon after, her life was scheduled around yoga and her late nights and unhealthy habits stopped. After three trips to Mysore, Day was given blessing to teach as an authorized level two teacher. But due to years of suffering from persistent back pain, they felt that the system of learning the series could be improved to suit the demands of each student better. So rather than the set sequence of the Ashtanga system, she has grouped asanas into certain sequences according to the student's current and developing needs. The day one yoga method was born, a tailored and customizable practice without posture or series hierarchy. A one-to-one instruction of Mysore still remains, but with a reassessment of the series. So now there is a delineation between the advanced and beginner students. Day is a remarkable practitioner, inspiring in her strength, both physically, but most of all charismatic and a no-bullshit personality and teacher. Welcome to the Kinder Yoko podcast, Day. Hey, thanks, Adam. Good to, good to be here. It's great to have you. Um, do you just want to tell us a little bit about your background with uh, yoga and, and Ashtanga yoga, how you got into it and stuff? Sure. I uh, I started uh, doing yoga in 2004. And uh, within that year, I, I tried a variety of different styles, as most people do, not knowing what the hell is the difference between any of them. And yeah. um, then within that year, I uh, took a, a job um, doing like a front desk work trade for the studio that I was attending. And uh, so my my shift was an early morning shift and there were two classes uh, that I was checking in and one of them was a Mysore class and the other one was kind of a very slow flow, you know, early right. morning yeah. class. And uh, when I, when you have to go and check in the room, you see, you know, you have to count the number of students and see uh-huh. what's going on yeah. in that room. And um, there's something really intriguing uh, was in there in that Mysore room. And uh, I guess I got... It was at Moksha Yoga in Chicago. Uh-huh, right. And you were doing uh, a degree at the time or something like that? I had just finished college. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, so um, people get into it. Yeah, well, yeah, like yeah. like a quarter life crisis type age. Yeah, like, what yeah. What the hell yeah, are you just, doing? Yeah yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, I just got um intrigued because it was a more or less silent room. Everybody was kind of working on their own thing. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that they were learning crazy skills, what looked like to me to be like beyond what normal yoga was. Um, you know, seeing things like TikToks and scorpion and dropbacks and handstands. And I'm like, what the hell? Why? I'm not learning any of this stuff in my vinyasa flow class. Um, <laughs> You know, so I was like, wow, you must have been absolutely gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. Yeah. And I remember looking at the primary series and just thinking, this is ridiculous. Yeah, it is it ridiculous. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, some of the, po- well, what happened was I wound up taking, um, of course, what most people do is they don't go directly into the Mysore room. They go to a guided class thinking that, uh-huh. that that's the better place to start, which, of course, yeah, is yeah, absolutely right. not. No. <laughs> yeah. So I went to a few guided classes and I was like, I mean, the first time maybe you do or see Garba Pindasana, you're like, what the hell is this? What? <laughs> like, you know, there's just some ridiculous postures in there that definitely yeah. don't make their way into their typical Hatha or Vinyasa class or whatever. Um, so that the guided classes were definitely not the thing that got me hooked. Um, but really what got me hooked was the idea that I could 
that I could be learning and honing some skills that um, were sort of beyond the generalized yoga practice. Yeah. Did you have a you have a like a physical background before that? Were you well, doing stuff? Or? I was doing stuff like when I was not in college at all, like nothing. I went to art school, and right. um, I basically forgot that I had a body for a few years. Um, (laughs) but prior to that, yeah, I was very athletic. Right. 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 So you got into yoga, you got into Ashtanga, like kind of like early on in Chicago. Um, and then were you practiced it for a few years and I suppose went to Mysore or something like that? Or how did that, how did the the progression go from there? It went uh, a few guided classes and dabbling and, um, and then, Really a big turning point for me was uh, honestly when Kino McGregor came and did a weekend workshop. And actually, uh, I I don't think that many people knew who Kino was at that time. Now, of course, everybody knows her. But um, at that time... There, there, she actually didn't really teach workshops. It was just like, we just kept doing guided classes. Uh, right. I, I seem to remember that like every class was like this long Vipassana style meditation and then guided primary. Um, right, right, right. Well, and, once, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Workshop has become a new, like it is a relatively recent phenomenon, right? I mean, I think yeah, the only maybe. person that was doing something like a workshop was I remember when I started was Richard Freeman. You know, yeah. and it was and it was very perplexing for us, most of us, just sit there, just go, "What's going on? Is it when are we going to practice?" You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. practice. What's going yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. Well, I actually really appreciated that uh, we were just practicing at that time. Yeah, sure. that's yeah. that's all I wanted to do was just yeah. was just practice. And so, um, yeah, what inspired me was that I thought that I was doing pretty good for myself in yoga, and you know, I thought I was like. Great. I'm brilliant. Yeah, I, yeah. I had uh, yeah. been pretty strong and I made myself relatively flexible compared to what I was when I first started, which was just in a month's time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. This was within my first year of practice ever. And um, and I had actually taught myself the uh, the jump through, but I was jumping through like on my fingertips, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, I know that. Yeah. 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 So uh, one of the things that really inspired me to start doing that practice every day was that um, in that weekend workshop with Kino, she kept calling me out and being like, hey, you know, you have to keep your hands flat. Right. And I was like, oh, damn, that adds a whole other layer to this (laughs) skill. And I was like, damn it. And so um, I was able to manage to do it a few times during that weekend with my hands flat. but. yeah, I was just like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get these movements because I I realized that the practice that I did in guided, which was so choppy feeling to me, was choppy because I wasn't doing the transitions. I wasn't jumping through. I wasn't jumping back. And it just felt like I was plopping my ass down on the mat, doing like this ridiculous posture and then plopping backwards. And it just felt very ungraceful. Uh, until I learned those transitions. So it was really that idea that, hey, if I get these transitions, it's going to be this very, you know, smooth, flowing, beautiful practice. And so uh, that's, I, after that weekend, I said, okay, I'm going to walk into the Mysore room. And that's what I did. Yeah. How long did it, I mean, did you kind of progress quickly or how long did it take you to get the primary series then and the intermediate? I mean, you know, truthfully, the people who were there uh, at that time teaching me moved me into second series after probably two months and it was way too quick. And then um, I couldn't, rem- I, I could barely remember primary series. There wasn't much of an emphasis on memorizing. They were just sort of like giving you the answers like, oh, this is next. This is next. Right. There, was no, right. there was no sense of meaning for why yeah. it was next. And so I still couldn't remember it. Um, I was just too early on and nobody was really explaining it to me. And then uh, sort of by uh, chance or blessing, the Mysore program at the studio that I was practicing at just folded. The teachers left went to teach in another part of the world and uh, I was left with self-practice, which was all within uh, probably a year's time. And I had just oh, been wow. practicing on my own ever since. So, you just, so from that moment, you just took it on your own, did it on your own? Yeah. Well, I had a full right. on pan- panic attack first. Yeah. <laughs> and then, 
And then I started practicing on my own. Yeah. 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 And I went from, of course, doing like full primary series and the few postures that I learned in second to doing half primary. There was no way on my own that I was going to do this ridiculous, like long practice. So just intuitively, I said, I'm going to do my practice. That's kind of sound sensible. Yeah. I just got a David Swenson DVD and just thought, well, I can try give. The leg goes there, the arm goes, oh, right, I'll try that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> You're doing like a yeah. horrendous advanced series. <laughs> you know what yeah. you're doing, but uh, no one there to check on you. Um, so who were, who were your teachers after that? Like, how did it go? And, and I suppose I'm circling around. I, I kind of saw you, and I think I met you in my school. I saw you in my school. We didn't really meet that much, but maybe 2012 or something. And maybe yeah. Kind of, so I think, and I kind of think I understood you, you kind of had, you've been practicing quite a big, long time before going to Mysore, right? So yeah, I have been, pra- I went, my first trip. transition come about? Yeah, my first trip um, to India was six years into my practice. I, right. I went, I started practicing in 2004 and I went to Mysore at the end of 2010. Uh-huh. And um, there was sort of a, an ultimatum. In, in both my mind and the mind of people that I was working with, which was like, hey, if you really want to, quote unquote, be the best at this or or be somewhat legitimized in what you're doing, right. you really have mm-hmm. to go. You really have to go to my source. So I was like, well, all righty. Um, it wasn't like India was not on the top of my list of places to go. In fact, uh, I hadn't traveled really outside of the country, outside of America. I went to Canada right. and Mexico. Yeah. It was like, yeah. I hadn't really traveled. And yeah. I also had for a very long time, like this huge fear of flying. So believe me, I did not want to go to India. I postponed as long as I felt like I could. Right. And, uh, and then, yeah, I went um, in 2010 and I guess that's it. That's like, I went a few, obviously I, I went annually yeah. more or less. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, what, what were your feelings about it? I mean, yeah, how can you, how, how, how was your experience there? And, and uh, obviously you're, you're, you describe yourself as an Ashtanga, how do you say an Ashtanga rogue now, an Ashtangi gone rogue? Um, yeah, I'm definitely uh, rogue. It, yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not because... I mean, how did you feel about it then? I mean, you know, obviously the first experiences must have been reasonable uh, to go back again. Mm, I felt like I had to go back. I, I right, didn't. Right. I didn't love my first trip, but again, oh. it was very hard for me to right. be away from home, to be away from home for so long, to be in total cult- culture shock. Um, and so, yes, I was not in love with my first trip. And I was also sort of warned, like, hey, don't expect any, don't expect um, Sharat to know your name or don't expect anybody to pay any bit of attention to you or whatever it was. And I was like, wow. So I had very low expectations. I was like, okay, great. I guess I'll show up to this foreign country in this place uh, filled with international students and just sit and be a nobody for a while until. I was go a, home. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, right. I go, I go yeah, home yeah. until I was until I was somewhat right. yeah, yeah, yeah. paid attention to. I yeah, I was pretty so ironic because people used to say like in the early days, and you know when I first started, oh, watch out when you go to Mysore, you know, like for all the adjustments. It's like no, you know, you used to say that. They said the older students were there before, right? And you go, no, that's not going to be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, speak, exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so you didn't yeah, like my, the first I didn't like. Um, no, I didn't love it. I mean, it was just hard. It was hard. Of course, like there's a lot of things in your life that are, you look back on that were incredibly hard in the moment, but you look back on it like, oh, that was one of the best times of my life. And of course I have mixed feelings about, Mm -hmm. about experiences like that because Mm -hmm. they were incredible, profound experiences. Um, but yeah, the first few trips weren't like great and fun loving like a lot of people maybe feel um yeah 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 so i think i, I don't know i think my first trip i i wasn't i wasn't left i wasn't at either way i think i felt neither way in the first time and then you know gradually i have to say i, I kind of i i did i did get into it i also yeah. felt like dr- drunk, i drunk the kool-aid a little bit uh, like yeah i think kind of 
I yeah. think a lot of people drink the Kool-Aid, which is not... Well, it's so, it's so, I mean, I suppose this is kind of teetering on the brink of, you know, like a, how you kind of broke away, as it were. But, you know, we kind of feel like you kind of get sucked into it and then there's a series and then there's, you know, a lot of people around you telling you you're doing great. And, you know, I mean, obviously you have ability, you know, you had ability in my store, right? And, uh, you know, it can all go in a rather funny direction. Yeah, well, um, I think that there's just this human thing of wanting to belong. And mm, that, mm. and when you are, there is definitely um, a very specific group relative to, you know, the vast number of people who practice yoga in the world being a part of the Sashtanga community or click or whatever you want to call it is like a, it almost feels like this kind of exclusive special thing. And, uh, and it's, it becomes very attractive for a lot of people, but it also can be like the source of, you know, like a lot of competition and, and like any click would be, yeah. um, I'm, yeah. you know, there are, there are nicer words I could use and there are probably worse words I could use. So I'm using click as, no. as sort of a middle, <laughs> no, no, a middle I mean, ground. I think that's totally relevant and, um, you know, appropriate. I think what people often don't realize is that, I mean, it's, it's changed now. There's always going to be an inner core, isn't there? But the, there is an inner core of the, the Meister experience, which is a relatively small number of people, right? Yeah. That it kind of, that kind of make, quite a kind of strong influence as to how one would approach it right right you know it's kind of you know, you're going to be like this and you're going to act like this and you know it's quite yeah and um and how and how did you um how did you find your, the breakaway then what happened what happened or made you kind of yeah kind of, you know because i assume you're going to not going going to go back again or or are no. you no, no, I'm definitely not. Um, if, if, I ever, if I ever go back to India, it will be for, uh, you know, vacation or, uh, or some other reason, professional reason. But um, how did it happen? It was, it, the branch was so slowly breaking beneath my feet, so to speak. And um, it, there were a few things, but I think what really did it was, um, it, at the end of 2013, um, which was not that far into my sort of career as being as right. as being a student in Mysore, I I was uh, at that kind of crucial place between second and third series where I was learning TikToks, which was a complete um, nightmare for me. If I'm honest, um, I was. I, I sort of make a joke in the Ashtanga world that there are two types of people. There are people who can TikTok and there are people who can scorpion. And, and it's sort of like, you don't do both. I was definitely on the scorpion team and not on the right. TikTok team. Um, mm -hmm. Just the way that, I don't know, like if you notice my practice or whatever, I'm very like slow and methodical and controlled. And I did not like that, like quick throwing right, your right. hurling your body through space type movement yeah. was not yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my thing right. and uh so anyway through that year that 2013 year I was actually the year that I was authorized um level two was uh that year that I was super uh afraid of not performing well enough to be perceived as, you know, able to move on to the third series. And right. TikToks was definitely a, a, you know, point of contention for me. And uh, though I could do it, I wasn't consistent. I was like, there were times when I would get over, there was times when it was just like, fuck, what a nightmare. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was feeling a lot of pressure. And of course, not to you know, name names, but Sherat was like, happened to be standing on my mat, like almost every single day when I was doing TikToks, like, come on, do them so we can do this catching nonsense and, and get it, get yeah, it so, done. So and it, she does, yeah. yeah. And so does seem to have a bad habit of, of kind of being when away you don't want him to be. Yeah. So I, yeah. So yeah. stupidly, yeah. yeah. And on my, yeah. on my part, stupidly, I, I rushed through something that really should have taken me a lot of time and consideration if I was to do it. So I was rushing through these things and um, that led to a really bad pattern that year where 
I was just going so quickly through the TikTok that I would like throw myself over. And I was landing in such a way, I guess, like most people do, they have one side that's tighter than the other, right? Mm -hmm. So my right, my right side of my back and my right hip were much tighter than the left side. So I believe that when I was landing and I felt it, I was landing kind of boom, boom, right, left, boom, boom, right, left. And in one of those landings, I landed and threw something, maybe a vertebra out of place. Right. Um, And it was one of those feelings like you ever feel like you want to twist just to pop your back or something like that. It was one of those feelings where I felt like, God, I really need to twist and pop my back. And um, it felt so out of place, so uncomfortable. And it didn't last like a day or two. It lasted five months. And uh, anyway, it, it was the beginning of the end, so to speak. I, mm-hmm. once, once I was able to, through um, actually PJ's father, do you know PJ Heffernan? Yeah. Was, yeah. was a chiropractor, is a chiropractor and was able to pop me back into place. And I thought, oh my God, after five months, thank God, um, this is finally, this pain is going to go away. But actually what happened is it got worse. And so it was a muscular pain. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what was the cause of it. How, what was, what could I do? And, Mm -hmm. uh, it led me down this very up and down rocky path of trying to determine exactly what was the the best route for my health, my body, my practice. And of course I thought if my back is hurting me this bad and I literally could not do a back bend, I went from right, catching. You were, I was going to say, were you, were you, did you continue practicing after I that did, point? And were you, were you practicing and teaching as normal? I was, I was teaching as normal. I certainly wasn't practicing as I normally would. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, I, I went from someone who was able to sort of catch, you know what I mean, but when I say catch, not everybody does, but I was one of those uh, people. For those who don't, yes, it, it, it's kind of my, again, a little mycel clique terminology, catching your ankles. Very yeah, important in yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. So I was one of those people who could do it by myself, unassisted, yeah. you know, that, that doesn't, that, there's not tons of people who do that in the yoga world. And I was, I went from that to not being able to like push into a wheel. The pain was just excruciating. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, it just led me into, well, first of all, I thought my career was over. I thought that the almost 10 years that I had devoted to this practice, the time, the money uh, was, was gone down the toilet. I thought um, there is no way I could be quote unquote successful in this field um, not be a part of the clique, the in crowd, not be a part of the Ashtanga system, not, uh, be able to get past third series, not become third certified, all these things. Mm, It just felt like my world was crashing down. And, um, it of course led me to be where I am today, which is learning how to figure out why your body has pain, the patterns of pain that there are, why certain people get certain pains and why other people get other pains. And really, ultimately, what is good about the Ashtanga practice, what I've chosen to keep, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and what I really see as a a model that needs to be adjusted. And so that's basically what I'm teaching now is what I'm calling the day one yoga method. Right. And I mean, just as a route into that, how did you solve your difficulty with the back then? I mean, what, so you had this crisis point, like talk us through how that went and how you resolved it. Uh, How I resolved it was through a lot of trial and error. I tried to do like to work my way through backbends, simpler backbends. I thought that I would be able to build it back up again. Um, What I ultimately determined and discovered was that I had a postural issue exacerbated and probably created because prior to doing Ashtanga yoga, my posture was different. So I think it was truly created from the practice that I developed a postural dysfunction called anterior pelvic tilting or APT. And that one of the things that I recognized in the practice, especially the practice that I was doing, which was primarily second series, five days a week. Um, and what I was working on, even on primary series days were 
tons of backbends, dropbacks, TikToks, et cetera, et cetera, that my practice had become almost completely dominated by backbends. Maybe 70% of what I was doing was backbending just because of the sheer amount of time that I was devoting to it. And um, what I determined was somebody who is an anterior pelvic tilter with tight, low back muscles that doing backbends makes the problem worse. So um, what I thought about uh, of course, through this discovery, I never even really heard of it or paid much attention to APT, PPT, uh, mm -hmm. postural dysfunction, movement patterns, anything like that until mm -hmm. I actually had pain and had to yeah. deal with it and figure it out. Um, but what I've discovered is that our quote unquote idea of balance in yoga, and I'll give you a really simple example. Let's say our idea of balance is that mm -hmm. you do Janushasana on the right side for five breaths. And of course, then you'll do Janushasana on the left side for five breaths. You'll yeah. do, you'll do up dog, you'll do down dog, right? Yeah. That's balance. You do a forward bend, you do a back bend, you do right side, okay. you do left side, and you give everything this um, sort of equal place, right? That, mm -hmm. That's the ideal. And that's Fine. what Ashtanga or yoga or whatever is supposed to be that this idea of balance, but what, the truth is, what the reality is, what the practicality is, is that what you have is people coming from all different places who have, quote unquote, an imbalance in their body. So doing something that is balanced, doing every movement with equal weight, right side, left side, forward bend, back bend, mm -hmm. means that they wind up in the exact same place, which is imbalance. I'll give you another example. If let's say that you have, everybody has one hip that's tighter than the other. So if you, if your right hip is tighter than your left hip and you're doing something, this is the Ashtanga speaking again, let's say you're doing leg behind the head, right? Yeah. And yeah. you do five breaths on your right side and you do five breaths on your left side, you're still imbalanced. What you really need to do if your right hip is tighter than your left hip is you need to be on your right side either twice as long, three times as okay. long, four times right. as long, or you need to do the right side and not do the left side because that would actually create balance. So what I came to understand is that, hey, if this yoga is supposed to make us healthy and create sustainability and longevity and peace and harmony, harmony in our body mm -hmm. and equilibrium and all these things, then we have to stop making the practice this, you know, sort of perfect thing that we all must try to attain or achieve and uh -huh. say, wait a minute, the practice actually truly has to do what it's supposed to do, which is adjust for the practitioner. In other words, the practitioner should not be in servitude to the practice. The practice should be in servitude to the practitioner. And that means that in order to quote unquote, have a balanced practice or an equal practice, that number one balance has to do with how the body responds. And so if you're tight on the right hip, maybe all you should be doing is right side exercises and then doing something completely different for the left side that would actually achieve what we're all really looking for, which is to correct our problems or to achieve, as I said, a better lack of better word is balance. Mm -hmm. So the only way that you could possibly know that is as a teacher is if you know bodies and if you know your students, if you actually talk to them, if you really get to know them, if I'm, so that means that the, the paradigm, the current paradigm, or maybe what I should say is the past tense paradigm was that there's 70 plus, maybe 300, maybe 500 people in a room. And there is absolutely no way to know the people who are practicing. There is very little connection between teacher and student. There's very little, little consideration because sure. how could there be? You can't. Mm -hmm possibly know every individual in a room in a sea full of people so, so in normal times you're teaching you're teaching a mysore style right and you know kind of regular you know kind of uh, touching kind of time um and uh, and how does that look now if you're teaching every single person and what kind of i i, I noticed i read i think you're teaching kind of different sequences to suit their bodies how yeah that's, well in, in an ideal world that takes if a I lot of work i mean it, that must, that yeah. must run you ragged 
yeah. No, or it how doesn't. Many it's actually much. It's, it's actually. Well? I mean, it's actually much easier. The truth okay. is that yeah, it's yeah, much yeah. easier. But in 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 the prior to COVID times, right? That what I would do, I never had. I did have tons and tons of students and classes in my showroom at once where I had like five assistants and you know, maybe not five, but three assistants. And, and right. that at that time, it was not possible to do that. But in, in the past couple of years, I've had much smaller classrooms. And once you know a person, you know, you sort of know them. So then the, it does function very much like a MISO room where they come in, they do their practice, they know what they're doing. The main thing is, is that when you get a new student, you take the time to actually observe, talk and get to know them. And uh, what I've come up with is that the practice, the way that we used to look at it, not only in terms of balance, but in terms of this linear progression where there's primary series, second series, third series, where you go from doing Urdhva to dropbacks, to TikToks, to Scorpion, to catching. Everything becomes, well, you can do this, now you do this. And if you can do right. this, now you do this. It's all this, this sort of linear thing. What I really discovered was, hey, the practice shouldn't be this linear thing. It should be modular. So what I mean by modular is that if I have a person who, let's say, has forward head posture, anterior tilting in the scapula, incredibly tight hamstrings, posterior pelvic tilter with too much spinal flexion, that the best, most healing, most therapeutic thing for a person like that, and let's say this person is brand new, uh, the best place to start would probably be the first six to eight postures of second series in a very therapeutic way, not saying that you have to do a deep pashasana or uh, mm -hmm. even kranchasana, but the, the most therapeutic things for a person like that to do would be salabhasana, bekasana, danyarasana, parsvadanyarasana, okay. et cetera. Yeah, and you would start them on that. You would start if, them on that if, if the person, call, if it called for that. So what I mean is that it shouldn't, in my opinion, mm. if I had a person and I've had this, so I'm sort of speaking from experiences and examples yeah. in my life. If mm. I had a person who was doing primary series and was not able to get their knees straight, was not able to contract their hamstrings. And so who wound up with a lot of spinal flexion as compensation, but their default position was spinal flexion. That is the worst thing for them. It's going to cause more pain. It's going to cause more issues. It may cause them the herniated disc, et cetera, et cetera. So the most loving, kind, peaceful, uh, ahimsa, compassionate, considerate thing, therapeutic healing thing for a brand new student like this would be to start with something that would actually be counter to their life or what their body looks like. And that is, again, what creates the balance. So the point is, is that every single person will have certain postures or certain groups of postures. We all know that they're like, they're sort of these groupings of postures that all kind of follow the same formula, like Marie Chasna and uh, leg behind the head and back bending and et cetera. And that all these groupings of postures, some of them could be really healing for one person and can be really detrimental for another person. And the main thing is, is that you get the right group of postures to the right person, rather than following this formula that you think everybody should follow. A, maybe if we do create balance in one of our students, we do create uh, this sort of like, wow, look, we've, we've developed this wonderfully uh, balanced and, and whole uh, physically athletic, mm, mm. strong person, maybe then they can follow a more linear pattern. But for the majority of people who are human beings with life and issues and jobs and whatever, let's face it, nobody's devoting their lives to their yoga practice the way that we in this Ashtanga right. community yeah, yeah. does. Well, they have other shit going on. Nobody is okay. going to go mm. through that, that horrible, horrific, painful process if they don't need to, if they could just start with a group of postures that actually makes them feel good and sort of get through their day. So for somebody like this, actually the person that I'm thinking of, I'm describing is like, a, yeah. was a car mechanic. There is actually a student I had who was a car mechanic who was uh, doing this 
learning primary series and he was doing thinking that the the yoga practice you know was going to help his back feel better and he's hunched over the hood of a car and then of course learning primary series where you're forward bending right that's that's not going to make you feel better actually your back pain won't it won't be better or it'll be worse so the best thing to do is do the opposite of whatever life has brought you and that's the point of doing this modular practice and being that it does, it puts a lot of responsibility on the teacher. What um, do you reckon about if someone comes in and they're like, I mean, do you still teach the, like, let's say, inverted commas, the traditional sequence? If uh, someone has the uh, the ability, let's say, and they seem to be exhibiting no signs or pain or injury? Um, or do you, you take know, things out and change it? I would ch- I, I almost change it for almost everybody. How do, you, how do you change it? It depends on the person who's standing in front of me. Really, honest to God, I haven't taught in this setting since COVID. I have not. Mm. I've been teaching online. I haven't Mm -hmm. had that opportunity. And so the truth is, is that when I'm teaching online, I'm teaching strength strength sequences, something that I call drills and stronger together. Um, And I'm not actually teaching the actual yoga postures unless they have taken some of my courses and done some one-on-one. So I actually get to know who this person is. So, um, yeah, I, that is how I'm doing it. And it just depends. I I've had very capable looking people. I've had people who, um, I'll give you an example, uh, in the past couple of years, I had a student who came in very young, very fit, very athletic, good, good shape, strong body, um, clearly had some sort of a gymnastic background Mm -hmm. and came in and I taught her primary series. And then at the end of primary series, I said, okay, do a couple backbends without telling her anything about the backbends. After a few backbends, she stood up and dropped back. So I said, well, that looks like a very capable person, doesn't it? So I said, well, she's like, do you care if I do this? I said, go ahead, do it. Do what you want. Do, do, you know, go ahead. And she started doing everything, you know, the TikToks and the squirt and like, and I, and this is a brand new student. She's been with me two days, three days a week. I, I don't even remember at this point, but I was just like, she came in with a natural ability, right? Long story short, after a few weeks of practicing, maybe a month, she was like, uh, she stopped showing up. I contacted her and I said, what's going on? She said, my back's just killing me. I can't, I just haven't been able to come to practice. And I, I said, you know what? Like, and this is all during the time when I'm starting Mm. to figure it out. (laughs) And I said, you know what? I think you're an anterior pelvic tilter too. And I think that all these backbends that you are very, very capable of doing um, are actually making your problem worse. And that's why you're experiencing so much back pain. So I said, Hey, do you want to come in and try to do a practice that I've been doing to heal my own back pain? And, uh, she came in and I basically taught her, you know, a lot more emphasis, even though she was doing primary series, which really looks like a lot of forward bending. I did a lot more emphasis on spinal flexion, really rounding the back, which is something that's totally a faux pas. It's a total no-no. You're not supposed to round your back. Um, for most people, you know, you're always supposed to fold with this open chest and not, not necessarily the Ashtanga world, but almost all yoga is sort of considered like, oh, forward bend with like an open heart and do all this, you know. And I was just like, no, let's yeah. not do that. Let's work on, let's, <laughs> let's, uh, yes, let's yes. work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know. I know. Yeah, I'm constantly battling against that. Um, so how did you? I mean, how did you correct your your anterior tilt? Then what does that look like? A, a primary series doing it your way? Uh, I've completely eliminated up up dog any backbend. Okay, so I don't do up dog. Up dog right. no longer exists in my practice. Okay, I think I've right. done it for over That's two kind years. Of extreme. Yeah, yeah. My 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 pain was extreme. So yeah, yeah, yeah. if it, if your pain is extreme and your yeah. life is essentially after the years and years of kapotasana and catching and et cetera, et cetera, my life was a fucking backbend. So now in order to create balance, Hey, I can't do any backbends. I can't even do Cobra. I can't even do up dog. Um, and let's face it. If you're doing primary series, which is mostly forward bends, there's still 60 up dogs. 
There's chaturanga, up dog, down dog, 60 yeah. times in the practice. So 60 times doing a nice deep inhalation up dog is still too much. So I've eliminated up dog. I've eliminated anything that looks like spinal extension. I've exaggerated uh, spinal flexion. So, um, you know, postures where normally you would just fold in half. I don't fold in half. I actually like yeah. pull backwards and round like a what? lot. Like what? So, like, uh, like here I can show you. Is this is this on video? Will people no, see this you'd video? Have to just audio it with your powers of. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, so basically what, instead of folding your body in half, the way that the yeah. ideal sort of picture. Like what posture? Yeah. Pashimatanasana, okay. forward yeah. bending. Yeah. Most people fold in half and that's supposed to be the uh -huh. perfect forward bend. But for somebody who's APT, the more perfect forward bend would be to grab your feet and, and pull away from your feet as if you were getting like punched in the gut. That, that moving backwards rather than forward, uh, that creates that big rounding in the back. You're not trying to press your face to your legs or your belly to your thighs. You're actually moving away from your feet. That actually creates the, the stretch and creates that spinal flexion that is counter to this big problem of anterior pelvic tilting, which by the way, anterior pelvic tilting statistically is much more predominant. It's about 70% of people versus posterior pelvic tilting, which is about 30% of people. And most yoga cueing is either for the quote unquote perfect person, again, the sort of misunderstanding of what balance is, or for the posterior pelvic tilting person, which has too much spinal flexion, because many people think that everybody sits at a desk too much and has too much rounding in their back, and everybody needs to counter that by straightening their back and opening their chest, is actually still not the majority of people. The majority of people are anterior pelvic tilters to one degree or another mm -hmm. and should be doing less back bending or spinal extension or things like that. So the, the point is, is that everybody needs a little bit of a postural assessment um, before they dump, jump into even seemingly simple postures like forward bending and up dog. Everybody do you needs think you'll, to Do you think you'll do them again? Do you think you can put some anterior tilting back into your practice or do you think that's it? Yeah, so there's no now. choice. Life, life right. is both. You have to be able to anterior pelvic tilt. You have to be able to posterior pelvic tilt. The ideal for everybody is that you have complete range of motion in all of your joints and that you are always able to return to neutral. And the problem is, is that even if I have full range of motion, let's say an anterior and posterior pelvic tilting, which would mean about 25 degrees of spinal extension and about 60 degrees of spinal flexion, that when I return, I would be returning to neutral. An anterior pelvic tilter's problem is that they don't return to neutral. They return to a place that has still more, more favorability towards spinal extension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that is a part of life. It is a huge part of my life and it, mm. it is absolutely integral to certain movements, uh, specifically pressing up into a handstand, which I love, um, pressing up into headstand forms, anything, anything that's an inversion, any um, forward bending even includes some element of anterior pelvic tilting. So there are certain things in my life that I am not willing to give up in the yoga practice. What I'm not willing to give up is handstanding press-ups and things like that. That's one of the few joys that I actually <laughs> keep in the, yeah, in the so practice that's, that's, is that. That's clear in, in watching what you do. Yeah. 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 So, so if I know for a fact that I won't give it up in a specific area, but I can control giving it up in other areas, which means for me, not doing up dog, not doing Urdhva Dhanurasana, not doing Ustrasana, Lagavadrasana, Kapotasana is just like, forget it. I mean, never, ever will I do that again. I can say with uh, the, uh, the utmost confidence. Right. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by, by creating balance and, and recognizing what sort of movements and movement patterns are, are a part of life and, and where you can sort of cheat yeah. or 
or um, hack your body in order to create what we really are looking for, which is pain-free, uh, happy, healthy range of motion. I suppose I'm kind of circling around the question of the people that obviously say, well, that's not yoga, right? I mean, you know, how do you defend that? That's not, that's just functional movement, right? I mean, you know, like you, you've never, you must have had that kind of thrown at you, right? I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, by the way, in terms of how to approach the postures. Um, yeah. But, you know, people are going to say, well, you know, and I know people are thinking, you know, listening, well, you know, well, I've got this tradition, you know, we've got the tradition of yoga and it's Chittavati Narodaha and it's, you know, there's something spiritual about the sequence and, uh, you know, the mind control and facing obstacles and, uh, you know, and uh, submitting and, uh, you know, all this stuff, right? You've heard it before, I'm sure I'm going to tell you that. Um, yeah. But how's yeah. You, I mean, what you're describing is intelligent, Actually, functional, functional movement, but does that not make it stop it being yoga anymore? Now how does that uh, how does that relate? Okay. How does that relate on a deeper level to you? I, the truth is, is that I think it's mm. more yoga. It's okay. more more of what yoga is supposed to be. Right. Yoga y- yoga in its essence is one thing, and we can discuss philosophy of yoga and the meaning of the word and all that stuff. But when we're just talking about yoga, physical asana yoga practice, the yoga asana practice is meant to create exactly what I said, a sense of calm, peace, balance, ease in your body, et cetera, et cetera. And if you are doing a practice that is specifically something that, again, is this linear practice that forces the practitioner or or gives them no option, no outlet to other than to follow this pattern, and they, that means that they have to go through a group of postures that could be potentially harmful for them. That is not yoga. That is not ahimsa. That is not what our yoga practice should be. Even there is an element of, of tapas or, or uh, agni that you have to endure, which is essentially sort of a heat or a burning or, or whatever you want to call it, the painful moments of practice. The painful moments of practice should be that you, there's challenge, that there's struggle, that there's difficulty, but it shouldn't be overall harmful. And so what I see as, as the practice that I'm doing and the practice that I'm teaching and sort of trying to bring out into the world is that true yoga practice means that you're, you're doing something that is good for your body rather than doing something that maybe is good, maybe is bad, but it's the way things are done and we're following a tradition or we're following a lineage and yay, put yourself through it regardless of what it winds up making you feel like in the end. So, um, I'm not real big on tradition. Let's face it. Tradition isn't traditional. Uh, when I first started going to Mysore, Sharat, for instance, was teaching that the last Titi Basna A, so you know there's like Titi Basna A, Titi Basna B, C, D, and then there's A again before you transition out. And when the, my very first year going to Mysore, in that guided second class, that Titi Basna was held for five breaths. The second time that I went back, it was held for one. So the point of this small little example is that tradition, quote unquote, tradition is constantly changing. And I think that anybody who's practiced for a significant amount of time knows that Sharat, what he's teaching has become so vastly different from the early teachings of Patabi Joyce, yet we're still clinging to this idea of lineage parampara tradition that actually is almost two different practices entirely. So there is no tradition is the point. There is no tradition. What what we're really meant to be doing as people, as teachers, as practitioners, is doing the best, smartest, most intelligent practice for the person practicing. And if the person who's standing in front of you as a teacher doesn't recognize that, as a teacher, it's your job, it's your obligation to be able to recognize what is appropriate for the student standing in front of you. Not to say, this is the practice and I'm going to force a, a round peg into a square hole. It is mm. to say, this is the practice that will actually help or, hey, I don't know exactly what's the best thing for you, but let's experiment, discuss and try. Is this a group of postures? How does this feel for you? Let's try it for a few weeks and see if we'll change it. 
but yeah, my my personal question would be like, at what point do you introduce variation when they start complaining of pain, or are you able? Because I don't think I would be um, to start to see someone and most immediately and go, well, this practice ought to be for you. Because oftentimes, what you say is you give it. You know, I could say I might make a variation given someone the general blueprint of a, of this sequence, which does a bunch of things, right? Like, um, you know, on a various levels. And then after a while, they come and go, well, you know what? Like, I've got a lot of pain in my lower back. And, you know, you should look on what they're doing and just say, well, okay, well, maybe, maybe you ought not to be doing capitalism then. <laughs> oh, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah. it's very basic. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not that smart with it. I mean, you know, I'm very basic and very, you know, just very rational and just, you know. Like, yeah. yeah. I'd be uh, interested to know if you, if you feel that you have more uh, foresight as to where a body might be going with it. Well, I, I didn't at first, but I think I, I definitely do now. Yeah. Right. I, I, right. now I, I know the patterns to look for. I, uh, right. I know the, I right. know, what? What, I know, mm, first of all, just standing, just posture. I can look at somebody okay. right. doing a sun salutation A. So that's the first thing we do. Doing a sun salutation A, you're standing. That, if you go to any physical therapist and you say, can I have a postural assessment? The first thing they're going to do is make you stand up from the side, stand from the front, stand from the back. So essentially standing, you can see a person's posture from how they stand. Second is forward bending. So you can see what their back, what their knees, what their legs look like in forward bending. You can see is this person predominantly tight in their hamstrings or are they predominantly tight in their low back? You can see how much spinal flexion is is occurring within the very first forward bend or two or three. Uh, once they get warmed up, you can see sort of their, their, their default. You can see in their tree knee position, are they able to do an anterior pelvic tilt? Are they able to get spinal extension? You can see their push patterns, shoulder movement in chaturanga, which is a push up, a push up negative. You can see up dog. There's a lot of issues with up dog. Most people have issues going from chaturanga to up dog. And then down dog is essentially a half forward bend. It's 90 degree angle. You can see it all there too. So mm-hmm. in every single movement of Suri Namaskar, you can look at somebody and say, yeah. okay, yeah. I know, I yeah. know exactly yeah. what yeah. is going on with this person. I can see, mm-hmm. all right. Yes, they're strong. Yes, they're athletic. Or no, they're not. No, they're not very strong. No, they're not very athletic. No, they're not coordinated. But beyond that, you can also see, hey, this person has a posterior pelvic tilt. Hey, this person has anterior um, scapular tilting. Hey, this person has scoliosis. Hey, this person has a tight right hip. Hey, this person has X, Y, and Z. And you can almost immediately, again, within the first five minutes, say, Yes, I know exactly what a good formula for you would be. And then, of course, there is an element of here, try this on. Does it feel better? Yeah, Are you sure. feeling better? Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, you mentioned the example of upward dog, and it's like, well, say the person comes in and they, they, they you know, you can see that they have a problem with it. Uh, how would you carry on teaching them in the hope that you might correct it? Or would you just simply say to people, well, just don't do it. Like you decided not to do it at all. Or is there a way with a lot of people that, that might be listening that will think, well, maybe there's a, you know, a correction or a way that you would teach it. that would, uh, you know, resolve or balance out the problem of this anterior uh, pelvic. Yeah. Uh, pos- posterior pelvic tilters could benefit a lot from doing light backbending, which I would include up dog Compared to the backbends that Ashtanga practitioners do, Urdhvadanyarasana, Scorpion, Catching, Kapotasana, up dog is a light backbend. Now, it certainly doesn't feel light for every single person that is doing it, but for this context, I would say up dog is, is in the category of light backbending. And certainly for a posterior pelvic tilter, doing a, a small element of light backbending could actually be really wonderful therapeutic healing um, and make the person feel actually really great in their body through, you know, extended practice of doing it. I I would say that if they have a really hard time backbending, um, it might actually be a good thing for them to do, but they may have to take steps in order to get to updog, meaning they may, salabasana might be a better substitution or, or cobra or a low 
cobra or yeah. something like that might be a better substitution in order to help them not bend and just, you know, everybody bends in L between S1 and L5 and L5 and L4. If, if, they're ha if they're only bending at that specific hinge point and you want to try to get them to, to access the upper hinge point between the thoracic and the lumbar spine, you may have them doing cobras and, and doing a little bit more pulling rather than pushing in that movement. And that might be really wonderful and therapeutic, as I said. But if I had a person like the, the girl I, I mentioned who was very capable doing backbends, mm, doing TikToks mm. within her first week of practicing, who came with that ability mm. and she could do up dog like nobody's business, it doesn't mean it's a good pose for her to do if she's a strong anterior pelvic tilter and her back muscles are just chronically tight. What she should be doing is actually eliminating up dog altogether because doing up dog is actually going to exacerbate her pain and her problems long-term. So in order, you, you have to figure out what's going to create the balance. And yeah. you have to be able to figure out, even if a person looks strong, wonderful, and athletic, does not mean that they should and can be doing everything. They still have certain things that are better for them than others. Yeah. And, uh, and you just have to be, well, for me, it was just, <laughs> it was a necessity for me. It was, it was a, yeah. you know, necessity yeah. born of pain. Yeah. But, I suppose, I mean, vinyasa has obviously gone out the window. What do you mean by that? Like vinyasa, the style of yoga might, has gone out the window? No, no, as in like, a, I suppose, let's be clear, the sequence of counting and the structure of that counting, breathing movement. And you, you're not, you're not up, you know, into that, or is that still? No, 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 I, no, 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 way behind. Um, right, okay. To me, the, the, the most effective, quote unquote, format of, of teaching and practicing is either one-on-one -on -one or in a Mysore style setting where you're doing individual teaching in a room full of people, um, doing a guided class in any form, uh, vinyasa, hatha, whatever other styles exist out there that are hybrids of each other, um, doing guided classes uh, in, even in the, again, the simplest postures, <laughs> up dog, forward bending could be disastrous for certain body types and does the exact opposite of what we're looking to achieve, which was balance, harmony, and equilibrium. We're all looking what, to what, achieve what that. What point does the breath play in that? I'm sorry, say that again? What point does the breath play in that? The breath, breathing as needed. I mean, we're, we're, the point is, is that as a teacher, even in a Mysore style room, let's, let's be honest, nobody is breathing to the vinyasa count in a Mysore style. That doesn't exist. It's not real. It's, it's sort of this fantasy. But once the teacher and the student have had some communication and have had, oh, like we agree on this is a good way to practice or this is a good program or this is a good group of postures. Once the student is doing that on their own, the teacher has moved away to somebody else. There's the breathing. There goes the breathing and the connection to actual movement, the same way that it would be if you're in a gym lifting weights. There is an absolute intuition to how your body should be breathing when you push, you know, your body weight up over your head or when you should be holding your breath, when you should be bracing, when you should be inhaling, when there's a moment of, you know, free breathing, all of those things happen absolutely intuitively once you have an established pattern or rhythm. Again, whether it's lifting Olympic weightlifting, where you're lifting 180 pounds from the floor to over your head, there is a, a specific pattern of movement, the same way that it would be that there's a specific pattern of movement in vinyasa when you're, when you're eventually aiming to get into an asana. There's a specific pattern of movement that will get you into that asana. And because of that, there will be a specific pattern of breathing. And it actually has nothing to do with the vinyasa counts. If, if we're really and truly honest, because the vinyasa count for Murray Chasna D is sapta from down dog, sapta, inhale Murray Chasna D, 
right? So let's be honest and say, that's bullshit. Let's call it. Let's call the bullshit and say that the vinyasas are not, they're not, they're not real. They're not a thing. The real thing is that you're going to jump through, probably take one or two breaths to get there, take your left foot in lotus, take one or two breaths to get there, stand up your right knee, one or two breaths, take an inhale, exhale, twist, take your arm as you're taking your arm back, there might be two or three breaths, there is going to be a specific pattern to that movement that will be several breaths for most people. So vinyasa yeah. counts. It's just, it's, it's like, it's not a thing. It's not something okay. worth keeping. Uh, and I, and this is coming from somebody who loved the vinyasa count and I actually love teaching it. Like it was this methodical scientific thing, but it's actually just not the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a kind of a partly approach to the question, but I suppose it, to, to kind of go further into it. So when you're doing this, this, the different sequences for people and then, you're giving them different postures at different times and, you know, you're working on different things to functionally correct things. Um, do, you, do you lose the meditative quality of the breath or do you find that you can continue that better in the, in the structuring of what you're doing? If you're not in pain, it's better. Right. I, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> if you're not in pain, it's better. Yeah, and it's yeah. long-term. It's long-term. The truth is, is that when you get a brand new student, they're not doing anything that they're supposed to be doing. They're not breathing correctly. They're not moving correct, quote unquote, correctly. Um, and they're not doing anything that they're supposed to do. This is a, a, a progressive uh, evolutionary type practice. So there is no idea uh, or, or timeline necessarily of when they're going to, or any person is going to achieve quote unquote perfection or idealism in, in the posture and the vinyasa and the practice. The best possible thing for you to do is, in my opinion, is trash all of that thinking that there is going to be some utopia ideal practice, which is what we're sort of indoctrinated to think when we're doing guided primary with the perfect vinyasa count and the perfect breathing and everything um, and say that the most perfect possible thing you can do for your body in your yoga practice is exactly the opposite of what you do in life. In other words, if your life is anterior pelvic tilting and arching your back too much or if your life is scoliosis and you have a scoliotic curve that causes your right side to be incredibly tight or whatever it is, then your yoga practice should be exactly the opposite of what has, life has done to you, essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. And that will create the best possible scenario for everything, for your breathing, for your health, okay. for your yeah. mentality, for your emotions, for your spirit, everything, because you're going to be feeling better in your body. Can you bring some of that, just to, to, to kind of finish up with you now, can you bring some of that practical wisdom into diet? What do, what do you do for diet? People love uh, uh, talking about food. Oh, God. <laughs> um <laughs> For me, what I've really, like the truth that I've really um, sat with is that it's a very, as Al Gore says, it's a very inconvenient truth, which is um, that I honest to God believe that, you know, we should be vegan, plant-based, um, and primarily raw, um, very little grains, if at all. And, uh, and yeah, primarily raw, vegan, plant-based fruit, mostly, um, diet. What about if you're living in a colder climate? I know you live in a, uh, kind of Miami. It's pretty, pretty okay to eat fruit there. But what if you're living in London? Yeah. That'd be tough. right to be raw and eat fruit. Yeah. Uh, it's tough, but what I would say is, um, broths like, you know, okay. like, like vegetable broths and, and soups and warming your food. I I'm from Chicago. I'm from a very, very cold place. Wow. Um, very cold, too cold, but, um, yeah, war warming your food or very lightly cooking it or dehydrating it, blending, uh, which in the blending of course keeps it raw, but it makes it warm. So there are, so, and, and just uh. different, you know, I know that the food availability, it's not quite the same in colder climates, but um, definitely I, 
uh, as far as as far as health and as far as sentient beings are concerned, it's uh, it's animal free on my plate. Yeah. yeah. And what about? I mean, um, the obvious question. You know, where where do you get your protein from? Then I mean, you look like you've got enough protein in you. Um, where, how, and how do you you can maintain muscle mass? Um, protein is in literally every food. It's in every food. Uh, so the protein thing is, is a myth. Um, thinking that the only, you know, viable source of protein comes from animals. Animals also get their protein from grass and from greens. So the best choice for proteins are actually, you know, leafy green vegetables and um you know if you if you like any uh, there any any plant based option that you would choose contains protein uh fruit contains protein figs are high in protein mm-hmm. i mean and f- yeah so i like figs um okay so that, that, wonderful um just um just to kind of give a rounded well not really a rounded perspective of you but um i always like the question at the end um what what something that inspires you uh, and uh, and a guilty pleasure, uh, you know, uh, a, a treat, an indulgence. Well, um, something that inspires me so much inspires me. Um, but I love like a good underdog story. Like, uh, <laughs> like the best example is like watching Rocky. That would like, that's, that's something like that would be like my, um, my thing, any, any inspirational stories, biographies, or like, or like a good underdog movie would, would be uh, very inspirational, but reading, um, my students inspire me, people all over the world inspire me. Really. I, I can't get it. There's I'm, I'm flo- overflowing in inspiration really. Um, and my guilty pleasure, the guilty pleasures I have are like dark chocolate and coffee. Oh, cliche. You finally submitted, <laughs> but yes, yeah. Did you feel that you were an underdog? Why? Why the underdog thing? That's an interesting. Uh, I, that. Everybody's an underdog, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, you always the the what you're given uh, in the world, the view of the world is that life is hard. You have to work hard. Um, you have to, you know, whatever whatever these sort of cliches are that you that you always, you know, you sort of feel like as as a human being, uh, even in Buddhism, life is suffering and, and it's always uphill. And I think that the real truth is is that you know if you if you believe in the law of attraction or you believe in any of that stuff, is that the the truth is is that the nature is abundant and that uh, abundance is is accessible to everyone and so what's really hard is to keep your mind in that in that state of truth and abundance uh even if what is around you looks bleak so uh, we're all given that bleak outlook at some point in our lives and for most of us it just sets in and um so we're we're all a bit of an underdog in a way thank you that's a nice note to end on i like that Thank you, Dave. Thanks for coming. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for letting me um, uh, passionately uh, rant for a little while. (laughs) Thank you. All right.